You know, the, uh, the, the idea that God, our God, is a God of judgment isn't a very popular idea. The idea that Jesus is a judge is not a very popular part of Jesus' identity. We don't really want that to be true or like that it is true. A gal named Betty J. Eady, um, she wrote a book called Embraced by the Light. Clear back in, in 1973, it was the first, that I know of anyway, it's the first book of I went to heaven and came back and now I'm telling you the story. Betty Eady was her name. And in that book, she says this about Jesus when she met him. He never wanted to do or say anything that offended me. That's the kind of Jesus we want right there. We want a God that, that won't offend me. A few weeks ago now, I had a conversation with a pastor from a, a, a different church, different denomination, not in our community, not even in southwest Nebraska. A long story as to why I was having this conversation, but he was trying to find out where he and I agreed and disagreed sort of theologically. And he went on our church's website, and he had a real problem with with this last part of the About Us section of, of our website. If I can get this thing to work. By the way, would you mute the keyboard? It, uh, sometimes it gets a little buzz. I don't, nobody else can probably hear it, but I can. It bothers me. So, Okay, this is the part that this pastor had a problem with. This is the end of our About Us statement. Just cut, copy and paste it off our website. It says, and I wrote this years ago, finally, our purpose statement says we try to please God by evangelizing the lost. Calling people lost might sound harsh or mean, but the Bible says that anyone who has not come to faith in Jesus Christ remains destined for God's wrath, John 3.36 the only way to avoid the wrath of God is to place one's faith in Jesus as Savior from John and Acts. All of us here at Imperial Berean were once lost too, and we can't think of anything nicer we could do for someone else than to help them understand how they can move from a position of wrath from God into a person, position of grace from God. Now, this pastor from a mainline denomination had a real problem. That was personally offensive to him. The idea that God was a God of wrath and that certain people, if they don't come to understand who Jesus did, who Jesus was and what he did for them, that they're still under God's wrath was offensive to him. He couldn't believe it. I don't want to believe in a, in a God like that. We want a God like Betty Edie's Jesus who never does or says anything to offend me and, you know, being judged is pretty, pretty offensive. Now, there are a couple of problems with that line of thought, though. I don't want to believe in a God like that because that's offensive to me. The first problem with that line of thinking is a, is a logical one. God has to offend us. He has to. Us in general, for sure. 
let's assume that God's goal, let's assume that Jesus was going to try really, really hard to not offend us. That raises some real questions of logic, questions like this. Which ones of us? Who is he going to not offend? Which who, from what time period, in what culture, is he going to not offend? Because as soon as he doesn't offend those folks, it's guaranteed that's going to be offensive to other folks. Right? People get offended by opposite things. If God takes this position, these people are going to be offended. But if he takes their position, those people are going to be offended. So the idea that I can't believe in a God who would do something offensive to me, automatically, unless God always agrees with you, right? Unless, does you really think God thinks exactly like you think? That's a difficult sort of pill to, to swallow. The second problem with this idea that it offends me that God is a judge. The second problem with that is the Bible, the way we know who God is. It is true that God is love. That's in the Bible. But this is also in the Bible. From Ezekiel chapter 7, this is God speaking. And listen to this. He says, soon now I will pour out my rage on you. I will fully vent my anger against you. I will judge you according to your behavior. I will hold you accountable for all of your abominable practices. My eye will not pity you. I will not spare you. For your behavior, I will hold you accountable, and you will suffer the consequences of your abominable practices. And then you will know that it is I, the Lord, who is striking you. That's God too. Jesus himself, speaking of his own role as our judge. Later in this book that we're studying right now, the book of Matthew, Jesus says this when he comes back. He says, speaking of himself, when the Son of Man comes in glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. All the nations will be assembled before him and he will separate people one from another like a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Verse 34, then the king will say to those on his right, come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared from you from the foundation of the world. But he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you accursed into the eternal fire that has been prepared for the devil and his angels. That's God too. Even the passage that, well, maybe the most popular passage that gets used by those who want to consider themselves Christian, but who want to try and believe that God won't judge anyone, that God's not a God of wrath, even that passage is just misunderstood. John 3, 16 and 17 is where people would normally go to try to make it seem like God said he won't judge anybody. John 3, 16, for God so loved the world, here's how much God loved the world, he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but will have eternal life. 
For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through Him. In the line of reasoning, if you stop right there, you can say, see? It says right there, God didn't condemn the world. Jesus didn't come to condemn the world. Actually, no, that's, that's not what it says. We have to keep reading, and I'll tell you what the whole thing sort of means. Verse 18 Jesus continues, whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. That passage right there from John chapter 3, it does say Jesus did not come the first time to condemn the world. It does say that. But why? Here's why. You don't have to condemn something that's already condemned. Jesus didn't come to condemn the world. Why? Because the world already stood condemned. Right? There's no sense beating the dead horse. Right? Condemned is condemned. Everyone was under God's judgment. So Jesus didn't show up to condemn the world. He showed up as not only judge, but Savior to give a condemned world its only chance out of condemnation. That's why Jesus came. Not because nobody would ever be condemned and God at the end of time is just going to say, oh, let's just forget about all that that ever happened. If God was not a God of judgment, there's no reason for Jesus to have gone to that cross. If God could just forgive, why would he send his son to die under God's wrath? The answer is he wouldn't have. As offensive and uncomfortable as it is to think about, our God is a God of judgment. He has to be. And the truth is, we want him to be. We want him to be. Now, not when it's me who needs judgment, but let something terrible happen to you or your family, and guess what you will want? justice, judgment on those who deserve it. The problem is before God, we all deserve it. And Jesus took that in our place. Now, the reason I told you all of that is because if we don't believe that God is a God of judgment, we can't understand today's passage. Because today's passage, a little story we're going to read in just a minute. Jesus gets really mad at a fig tree because it doesn't have any figs on it. And he's going to miraculously kill a fig tree. And it is a picture of coming judgment. And if we don't understand that judgment is part of God's plan for everyone who is not in Christ, we just think Jesus was mean to a tree. So let's read our passage this morning. This is specifically about coming judgment, judgment that was coming to the nation of Israel for rejecting Jesus we're in Matthew chapter, uh, Matthew chapter 21, verses 18 through 22. And they read this way. Now, in the morning, so Jesus has just cleansed the temple. He went to Bethany, and he is coming back to the temple the next morning. Now, in the morning, when he was returning to the city, 
Jesus became hungry. Seeing a lone fig tree by the road, he came to it and found nothing on it except leaves only. And he said to the tree, no longer shall there ever be any fruit from you. And at once the fig tree withered. Seeing this, the disciples were amazed and asked, how did the fig tree wither so quickly? Verse 21, and Jesus answered and said to them, truly I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what was done to this fig tree, but even if you say to this mountain, be taken up and cast into the sea, it will happen. And all things you ask in prayer, believing you will receive. Okay, there's our, there's our story. It's about judgment on Israel. Why is this about Israel? Do you just have to take my word for that? This is about Israel because we can go elsewhere in the Bible and see this. We can go earlier in Jesus' ministry, and Jesus once taught a parable. This is the acted-out version. Our passage today is the acted-out version of this parable in Luke 13. In Luke 13, see if this sounds all familiar, Jesus is talking about the, the, talking to the people of Jerusalem, the people of Israel. No, I tell you, unless you repent, you will perish as well. What did Israel want the Messiah to do? To kick out the Gentiles, kick out the Romans, and raise up and save the Jews. Israel, raise us up, put them down. Jesus said, you've got it all wrong, Israel. If you don't repent, change your mind about your sin and about what makes you righteous. If you don't accept Christ, if you don't accept me, Jesus would say, you are going to perish as well. And then Jesus told this little parable about Israel. Then Jesus told this parable. A man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came looking for fruit on it and found none. So he said to the worker who tended the vineyard, for three years now, how long did Jesus minister? Three years. So for three years now, I have come looking for fruit on this fig tree, and each time I inspect it, I don't find any. Cut this tree down. Why should it continue to deplete the soil? This thing is a waste of nitrogen. Verse 8, But the worker answered him, Sir, leave it alone for a little while longer for this year too until I dig around it and I'll put some fertilizer in it and it'll be great. This tree can turn it around. And then if it bears, uh, it bears fruit next year, very well. But if not, you can cut it down then. Okay? And very clearly, assuming that I'm not lying to you about Jesus talking to the people of Jerusalem, and I promise I'm not, that's a parable about Israel perishing, about a fig tree with no fruit. And later in his ministry, we get to today's passage, and he comes to a, to a tree, and he talks to a tree, which seems weird, but he's doing it to prove a point. The time has come for the tree to be cut down. He'll wait a little while longer, but it's going to be chopped down, and that tree represents Israel, and Judaism, Israel's religious system. And that's what's coming. By the way, we could go elsewhere in the Old Testament where Israel's compared to a fig tree. One place, uh, Micah 7, God says looking for goodness in Israel is like looking for figs on a tree that doesn't have any figs. Okay, so what is wrong with Israel? God's chosen people that leave them sort of ready for the axe. For God to, to chop it down. 
Or, put another way, if everyone's under God's judgment anyway, why does Israel need it to be singled out in this acted out parable? All right. When this parable, Jesus is hungry. It's early in the morning. He sees a tree, and it's a good-looking tree. It looks like it would be a good source of food, but he gets there, and there's no figs on it. It was all leaves and no fruit. It'll look good from the outside, but you get up close, and if there's nothing nourishing about it, that's Israel by Jesus' day. That's Judaism, Israel's religious system, by Jesus' day. Here's why Israel looked healthy and spiritual and religious and good. It has this huge spiritual resume. It's got this giant, beautiful, wonderful temple that I wish I could just go back in time and walk into that place and look around because by all accounts, it was amazing. And that's laid out according to God's prescribed manner to approach him. So I have a beautiful temple. Israel had the patriarchs, Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, and God chose them out of all the people of the world, and he made, he chose this one nation to make his special people. That's part of their resume. They have the prophets, they have the scriptures, they have the prophets, I said that already, they have the law. So they look like they should be pleasing to God, sort of on paper. But no one is saved from God's wrath by anything, by like what looks religious and spiritual. Israel was not serving its purpose. Do you know why Israel was created? Do you know why Israel was chosen? There's one guy, his name was Abram. He was as pagan as pagans get. He lived in Iraq. Do you know the first Jew was an Iraqi? Chew on that for a while. Okay? God calls Abram and says, I'm going to pick you and I'm going to make a nation out of your grandbabies, great grandbabies. I'm going to make a nation. That's going to be my chosen nation. Do you know why God did that? Because God had promised to send a savior. Clear back from the Garden of Eden in the very first sin, a descendant of Eve is going to crush the serpent, reverse the curse. God promised. And that baby had to come from somewhere. And so he created, Israel existed as a nation, not because they were wonderful and religious and righteous, but because God promised to bring a savior. And he just decided to do it through this family. The prophets existed so that when the Messiah showed up, we would know him when he came. The law existed so that people could know they needed a Savior because the law is like a mirror, Paul said, and you hold it up and you see how sinful you are and I can't do this. All the sacrifices in that temple existed to point toward the sacrifice which would end all sacrifices. And by Jesus' day, three and a half years of his ministry, and Israel rejects Jesus They're like the tree that looks like it has everything going for it and no fruit. Israel, without its Messiah, is as fruitless a tree as there ever was. And it's worthless. So that's what's wrong with Israel. There's no way it can nourish anybody spiritually without the Messiah it was created to produce. 
And Jesus acts out this parable to show what's going to happen to Israel. He talks bad to it. It withers and dies. He's going to wait a little while longer. And then about 40 years from that conversation, you know what the Romans do to Jerusalem? They, they show up with all of their might and lay waste to the place. That is God, his judgment and his wrath, chopping down the fruitless tree. The, uh, the Romans just destroy the place. So that's what the parable means. It's an acted out parable. The tree is fruitless. I'm going to cut it down. So Jesus acts out this parable. It withers. And then the disciples, in my opinion, ask the wrong question. It's a logical question. But they ask the wrong question. They ask Jesus, how did the fig tree wither so quickly? That's a reasonable question. It was healthy a minute ago. Uh, probably, by the way, if we read the other Gospels, this story happens. Evening on the way down the hill, he curses the fig tree. When they come back in the morning, it's dead. Matthew wants to tell it all in one story. But regardless, at least overnight, this tree goes from healthy and beautiful to dead. And the disciples go, man, that's a good one. How'd you do that? How'd that happen? It's a good question. But the reason I say it's the wrong question is because it's not the question Jesus answers. Jesus is not concerned with botany. He doesn't tell them how he did it. He doesn't say, well, see the cell walls. I ruptured all the cell walls and the chloroplasts and the whatever else you learned in biology class. He doesn't talk about any of that stuff. He doesn't tell them how he withered the tree. They ask the wrong question. And the reason I say it's the wrong question is because I think if we look at Jesus' answer, Jesus answers the questions like he wishes they would have asked. If they would have understood what he was teaching, they would have had different questions. See, we have, we have the whole Bible, right? We've seen the end of the scriptures. We have history that tells us in AD 70, the Romans chopped the tree down, right? That they, and the disciples had no idea any of that was coming. But if they did have an idea that was coming, they would have had some different questions about what God was planning. And that's what Jesus answers here. Let's read his answer. So the, the disciples ask, Jesus talks bad to the fig tree, curses it, you're a fruitless tree, it withers. They say, Jesus, wow, how'd you do that? He doesn't answer that. He says this, Jesus answered them, verse 21, I tell you the truth, if you have faith and do not doubt, not only will you do what was done to the fig tree, but even if you say to this mountain, be lifted up and thrown into the sea, it will happen. And whatever you ask in prayer, if you believe, you will receive. All right, what questions do you think maybe Jesus wished they had asked? Or what questions does Jesus know people will one day ask? Let's say you are a Jew in late in the first century, the year 71, AD 71. Here's where you would be as a Jewish person. You grew up your entire life 
understanding and believing that the way to God is to take animals to the temple in Jerusalem, have those sacrifices, those animals sacrificed in the prescribed manner with the right priest in the right place at the right time. And if you do that, God will forgive you from your sin because you know you haven't kept the law. And that's the way you deal with God. Now by AD 71, what question do you have? Now what? Because according to my belief system, the only way I can have my sin dealt with and approach God is to go to a temple and give sacrifices, and that temple does not exist. And in fact, you probably don't even live around Jerusalem anymore because you and your family had to hightail it out of there before you met the same fate as the temple. So now you live in a strange place and you're trying to restart your life and your question is, how do I get to God now? How can God be okay with me now? Now, if that's the question, look at the answer. I tell you the truth. If you have, what's the next word? If you have faith and do not doubt, you will do what's done to this fig tree. What was the fig tree in this parable? Was he concerned with the tree? Is Jesus a botanist? Does Jesus want to train you how to kill trees with the power of your mind? Is that what Jesus is concerned about? What's the fig tree? It's Israel's, the religious system of the Jews. How will I get to God? How will I get to you now, God? Jesus says, if you have the right kind of faith, you'll tell the fig tree, go ahead and wither. And you will, will Jesus train you how to change the topography of the earth? And you can, like if we had any mountains or even hills around here, you could command them to go jump in the Enders Lake. Is that what Jesus wants you to be able to do? No. What mountain? This is not any mountain, by the way. I'm going to cough here. Excuse me. <coughs> even if you say to which mountain? This mountain. What mountain were they standing on? Where were they headed? Back up into the temple. Jesus, you have the right kind of faith. You'll tell this, you, don't, you won't care if this very mountain goes and jumps in the sea. Because you don't need what goes on here to be with God. You have two things in this, two things in this answer. You have faith and you have prayer. And when he says, and you have faith and do not doubt, Jesus would tell the first century Jew, if you believe the right kind of belief, and the rest of the New Testament will hash out what that belief is. Belief is that on the cross was the only sacrifice I will ever need. Don't doubt that whether or not Jesus was enough. Jesus is not saying, if you've ever wondered about that, like, wow, can he really do that? Oh, you're lost. That doesn't count. No. Rejection is the opposite of saving faith, not these kind of doubts. Jesus is telling, like the first century Jew, don't say, well, I'm going to do Jesus, but I'm just in case, I'm going to do these other sacrifices too. I'm going to dabble in these other religions too. Just in case, I'm going to try Jesus, and then I'm going to try Buddha, and I'm going to try uh, Muhammad, and I'm going to try the, the Hindu Vedas, just to make sure my bases are covered. Jesus said, no. If you have the right kind of faith, put all your eggs in my basket. Then you will not care that the fig tree has withered. You wouldn't care if this, if this mountain goes and jumps in the lake. 
because you won't need it anymore. Whatever you ask in prayer, if you believe, you will see. What would that AD 71 Jew, what would he be asking? What would she be asking? How can I get to you? How can I be reconciled to a holy God when the temple's not there anymore? If you have faith, you can pray to me about that. And you will receive what you are asking for. Access right to me that comes through faith in Jesus Christ. That's the right answer, even though they asked the wrong question. Let's say you're one of Jesus' disciples. Just a few days from when he withers this fig tree. I remember we're in Holy Week. This is probably Monday morning. What happens to Jesus on Friday of that week? He's executed brutally. Now he's going to rise again, which is going to be awesome. hate to give away the ending of the book, but after he rises from the dead, he's going to call the boys back together one more time, and he's going to give them a job to do. Guess what their job is? You think your job is hard? <laughs> Listen to this. He's got the guys back together, and just before he ascends into heaven, he says, I want you 11 guys and your friends to go into the entire world and make disciples in every nation. And when you make a disciple, you baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Okay, good luck out there. Everybody in. One, two, three. Ready, break. All right, if you were there, what's your question then? I'd have lots of them like, are you sure? <laughs> like, what? How do we do that? How can we possibly do what you want us to do. Do you know the answer already? What two things do you need? Somebody say, what two things do you need? Faith and prayer. I tell you the truth. If you have the right kind of faith, if you have the right kind of faith and do not doubt that I will do what I have asked you to do. See, this can be read a wrong way. And a lot of people believe what Jesus is teaching there. If I, if I want something, all I have to do is believe hard enough and I can do whatever I want to do. Like Jesus taught us to do magic tricks. That's not what this is about. Jesus promised these guys, I will build my audience participation here. Come on, one more time. I will build my, I will build my church. Then he tells those 11 guys, now you go build my church. I think they want to go, whoa, 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 whoa. You said you were going to do this. Yes. But you told us to go do it. Yes. I will do it through you. How are we going to do that? Faith and prayer. If you have faith in me and you do not doubt that I am going to accomplish what I promised to accomplish, then you go out there and get to work. And you can believe, I will build my church. You won't need the fig tree. You won't need this mountain. This is whatever you ask for in prayer, when you believe, you'll receive. Now, asking in faith means I believe the best thing I can ask for is what God says is best. To do what he wants to accomplish in and through me. 
And even when we can't understand why He's not answering my prayer, we believe His will, His sovereignty, Him being in charge is what is best. But He will do what He promises to do. We won't need the fig tree. We won't need sacrifices. Faith in Him and prayer directly with Him. Now, by way of extension, this is about Israel. God said, Israel, you were fruitless. You rejected Jesus. I'm chopping you down. We'll see next week. He's going to turn over the, the ingathering of the harvest to other people besides Israel. But there is an extension for us today. I don't think that metaphorical fig tree was the last thing Jesus ever chopped down because of unfruitfulness. I think that still happens. I think it still happens to churches. And Jesus told us it would happen. He just didn't use the fig tree analogy. In the book of Revelation, the very end of our Bibles, Jesus sent some messages, some letters out to churches that existed in his day. This is the risen Jesus after he had died. John writes this down, Jesus' friend John. And to the church at Ephesus, a church Paul started and wrote a letter to the book of Ephesians was written to this. But here's a message, a warning Jesus had for that church. This is Revelation 2, 4, and 5. Jesus to the church at Ephesus says, but I have this against you, Ephesians. Here's the problem I have with you. You have left your first love. Therefore, remember from where you have fallen and repent and do the deeds you did at first or else I am coming to you and I will remove your lampstand out of its place unless you repent. That's the warning. <coughs> What's Jesus say there? He doesn't say, if you don't get back to doing what you used to do, I'm going to send you to hell forever and ever. It's not what he says. But he does say this. I'm going to remove your lampstand. What is that? The church at Ephesus used to be Jesus's. This is a place we call Turkey now. That's where Ephesus is. It used to shine the light of Jesus into a dark place. And people came to the church at Ephesus. Um, or the church at Ephesus went to the people. And they came to know Jesus. And they were his chosen lampstand. They, they just held the fire, but Jesus was, was the fire. And Jesus is saying, you used to be doing so good, Ephesians. You used to sort of be on fire for me. You weren't perfect. You had problems. But I was your primary love. You loved me more than you loved anything else. And that's not true anymore. And he said, you need to remember what your first love was. And when you sought me first and my kingdom and my righteousness, when that was your priority, you need to go back there. Think about what you did. Think about who you were. When, that, when I was your primary love, first in importance. Because if you don't, I'm going to remove the lampstand. Which means, if I'm not your priority, I don't want you to be attracted because you're not shining my light. I don't know which light you're shining. But if it's not me, 
I'm going to take that away. Does that still happen to churches, to denominations? It happened in Ephesus. If you don't believe me, buy a plane ticket, fly to Turkey, go to Ephesus, and look for the church. I think there are, there are entire denominations. I think there are entire religious, formerly Christian religious movements. There are plenty of universities that started as, as Christian universities with a ministry for Christ that have had the lampstand taken away. Many of them still exist. But they try to attract people so that their organization continues to exist. Or to make money. Or for some other reason. Or to, or to help people. But they do not bear the light of Christ. And his gospel. So from all that, what do we learn? First, Jesus is the judge. Don't get so enamored with, with the loving parts of Jesus' character that you miss. Like he walked up to a fig tree, he killed that thing and said, I'm going to do that to my countrymen and the nation that's my chosen people. If Jesus will judge Israel and Judaism, there is no one he won't judge. If there is more than one way to eternal life, don't you think God would allow Judaism to be one of those ways? I mean, he created it. It was his idea. And he chopped it down. Why? Because number two, it, accept, it rejected Jesus as its savior, as its centerpiece. Jesus is our judge. He's also the only way to avoid his judgment. Again, what does God save us from at the cross? He saves us from God, from his wrath. And then once we get past those two things, if you understand I am destined for wrath, Jesus is my only hope. If he didn't take my wrath, God's wrath is still on my head. If you believe that, the number three comes into play for you. Jesus still desires fruit. We do not want to be all leaves and no fruit. Because Jesus will remove our opportunity to shine his light. It still happens. It can happen to the Berean Fellowship of Churches. It can happen to Imperial Berean Church. It's probably happened to bigger and better and nicer churches than this one. About eight years ago, there were 30 or 40 of us. And you know what people were worried about? Whether or not we were going to close the doors of this joint. And it was a real, it was a real concern. And we decided if we love Jesus and put our hope in him and, and tell other people that, he promised to build his church. He didn't promise necessarily to build it here. He is not obligated to build this church. He is obligated to build his church. And he wants us to love him and love others. Listen, it's really easy, especially for those of us who are part of the 30 or 40, to kind of go, whew, 
this place is going to outlive me, right? Like, I don't have to be the one to lock the door and put the for sale sign. Thank goodness. And rest easy. Listen, every single day, you know what I need to be doing? Asking myself, what is my primary love in this world? Because if it ain't Jesus, if it ain't Jesus, he's saying, I'll rem- I can remove that lampstand. I-, I do not have to build my church there. I can do it someplace else. Personally, this morning, let me ask you. If you are honest, honest, honest in your heart of hearts, primary, what is your first love? Not what you loved first in the order of things. It's not that kind of first. Last week, the last month, what was your first love? Can you back me up one slide there, Seth? It'd be easy, quicker if you do it. And if we can't say it was Jesus, Jesus would say this to us this morning. Therefore, remember from where you have fallen. Repent. Do the things you used to do with the motivation that made you do them. I can't tell you that he's... An, threatening to withdraw our lampstand. I just know he still desires fruit. And I don't care how many cars are in the parking lot here. He does not want us. He is not interested in us being all leaves and no fruit. Would you pray with me? Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for making a way to save us from your wrath through Christ and his death, burial, and resurrection. You have saved us, those of us who have come to believe in you. I thank you for this church and for the loving people and message and the gospel that is here. But it is yours, and we are yours. And God, where you are not our first love, bring us to our knees and to repentance that we might put you back in the place you deserve to be in our life where you receive all the glory and all the honor and, and that you are the driving and the love of you is the driving force and the driving joy of our lives. And God, we desire that more and more people learn what you have done and accept you as Savior. But not so people think, man, there's a lot of people who go to that church. Isn't that something? No. So that one more and one more and one more sinner might be rescued from the clutches of sin and death and hell. We love you, Lord. We want you to be our first, our primary love. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.